This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, this is Christopher Milke, and welcome to Past Perfect, this is CEU Medieval Radio Show in Medieval and Early Modern History and Culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Joining us today is Dr. Francesco Dallaglio. Uh, Dr. Dallaglio is a researcher at the Italian Institute for Historic Research in Naples, so thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for interviewing me. You have a very uh, wide area of research interest, and to sort of uh, set the stage for the listeners back home, I wanted to talk a little bit about the historic context before of the time and place you're interested in researching. So, you know, I wanted to start off the interview with uh, just asking you for like um, a very basic overview, if you don't mind, what's going on in the Balkans uh, during the Fourth and the Fifth Crusades. Well, this is an excellent question and it's something I'm trying to answer because we have a terrible lack of contemporary sources. We have to keep in mind that uh, although the Balkans were uh, well, one of the hotspots of Europe at the moment, we don't have many sources originating from Bulgaria or Serbia. We know the Balkans from latent sources, from Byzantine sources, but of course, this means that our knowledge of Bulgaria, of Serbia, of Bosnia is biased and probably not complete. This is something we may correct uh, with a comparison of the sources, but sometimes we just have to guess what was going on. Regarding the source material situation, is there any particular reason for this lack of sources? Is it that people weren't writing things down or have the sources been destroyed? Well, this is a good question, and it's guesswork as well. We know for certain, of course, that they were keeping historical records. We have evidence from the latent sources. For instance, when Tsar Kaloyan of Bulgaria, who was a Bulgarian ruler from 1197 to 1207, was having a correspondence with Pope Innocent III, he made explicit reference to Bulgarian historical archives. So, well, we may say that they had archives, Probably those archives were destroyed during the time of the, of the Turkish occupation. This is uh, something that one of the Bulgarian historians of the 17th century, Paisi Landarsky, says explicitly. He said that, well, now I'm quoting Tart, so to say, in that time people were concerned with running away and did not care for the historical archives. But they had historical archives. This is, this is sure. Unfortunately, we don't have them. I see. So it's very similar to Hungary as well, where there's a, the sort of sources that we're working with in Hungary. It ends up being a bit of a patchwork, like a, a honeycomb of different sources. You have things like yes. papal yes. letters, foreign chronicles. Sometimes there's geological sources for certain things, but uh, if you want to learn about court hierarchy, who was holding what rank, it's a bit more difficult. Yes, it is very difficult. And we have a complete lack of sources about uh, the internal organization of the state. Usually, we tend to believe that Bulgaria, my, my era specialization is Bulgaria, so of course I will be mainly talking about Bulgaria. We usually think that Bulgaria was organized on the Byzantine model, 
but there are some differences as well and it's very difficult for us to understand exactly how things were going at the moment. I'm speaking about the end of the 12th century and the 13th century. The 14th century, it's, it's, it's over. I mean, for Bulgaria, it's almost over. Well, and, and that is one sort of interesting notion where if you if you read the older literature on Bulgaria in the Middle Ages, it it talks about Bulgaria throughout, whether it's the 7th century or whether it's the 13th century, as essentially being a Byzantine satellite state where yes. a lot of what was going on in Bulgaria was just strictly imitation. Yes, this is true. And um, I've been mainly interested in trying to find a different approach on Bulgaria and on the Balkan states as well. Because it is true that to a certain level, the Byzantine presence was strong and very influential. This is obvious. I mean, it was the empire, it was a neighboring empire, and it was a successful political and cultural model. So it's obvious that lots of Bulgarian institutions and, and political practices may well be a derivation of Byzantine practices. But at the same time, especially for the uh, 8th and 9th century, we know for certain that Bulgaria had some particularity as well. It had some independent political traditions originating from the, the contacts with, um, uh, with the steppe world. But unfortunately, we only have the Byzantine version. I see. And so we, we have to try to sift through the sources and try to understand what they wanted to say, what they really knew, and what they were, in brackets, hiding. I mean, what was not interesting for the Byzantines as well. Definitely want to get back to Bulgaria in a bit, but uh, for now, could you talk a little bit about the path of the Crusaders through the Balkans in the Fourth and the Fifth Crusades? I know that in the earlier Crusades, there was a lot of conflict when the Crusaders were traveling. Is this the case for the Fourth and Fifth Crusades as well? Well, for the Fourth Crusade, of course, the big conflict was with Byzantium. And immediately after the conquest of, of the town and of the empire, the Crusaders, the little empire of Constantinople, tried to enforce its power on Bulgaria as well. But they were unable to do so, because Bulgaria was, at that time, quite a well-established country, even if, if it was very young, because... Bulgaria regained its independence in 1185, 1186, so, well, just 20 years before. But they managed to build up quite a, a powerful state, profiting from the Byzantine decadence, of course. And so, for the Crusaders, it was really difficult to try to do what they were trying to do, that is, enforcing their power over Bulgaria, and they were unable to do so. So, there was quite a lot of conflict, but not during the Fourth Crusade, immediately afterwards. Why is that? Is it, is it because of the Crusaders trying to set up this uh, state in Constantinople they, after the destruction in 1204? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And probably they believed, according to the, to the Byzantine tradition, that the Bulgarians were just rebels. I mean, that the lands of Bulgaria were part of the Byzantine Empire, and since they were the new masters of Constantinople, they probably believed, at least in the beginning, that Bulgaria was part of their dominion. What little I remember and recall uh, in this period, um, 
from the brief time I've spent in Bulgaria myself is that one of the sort of claims to fame is that uh, essentially, the, I believe it was the Fourth Crusade ended uh, in Bulgaria. I heard from some of the, the locals there that they essentially, the Bulgarian state stopped the crusading armies. Yeah, but after the end of the Fourth Crusade, you're probably talking about the Battle of Adrianopolis in 1205. Oh, yes, when, that's uh, it. Yeah, exactly. When the crusading army was stopped by a coalition between the Bulgarians, the Cumans, their long long-lasting allies, and a part of the Byzantine nobility in Thrace and Macedonia, which sided with Bulgaria against the Latins, of course, not out of love for <laughs> Bulgaria. And yes, we may say that the Fourth Crusade ended in Bulgaria and at Adrianopolis, because the first emperor of Constantinople, Baldwin, was taken prisoner, and he was probably brought to Turnovo, the Bulgarian capital, where he died, we don't know if he was executed or if he died of his wounds or of illness. We don't know. We have two different accounts, actually. The Byzantine account, of course, blames the Bulgarian Tsar, said that he had him executed in a particularly gruesome way, actually. While instead, we have a latin account, Albericus, who is really romancing because, according to his account, the wife of Kaloyan fell in love with Baldwin. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. So you can imagine that, of course, the Bulgarian Tsar was enraged. Both accounts tell us that Kaloyan had Baldwin executed. So maybe there is some truth in this. I mean, whichever were the motivations, we may say that, yeah, it may be executed. In, but I don't know. This is one of those instances in which we do not have any Bulgarian source. So, of course, we do not know the motivations. For this act if this act was even performed again going back to the problem of the source material yeah but at the same time i think the fact that it's sort of interesting all of the romance that goes with that i mean when you and i were in turnovo together if i'm in my understanding there's still a a building there called baldwin's tower yes yes of course but that is that's just a tower. I mean, <laughs> uh, of course, it, it's a corner tower in the fortress. So, of course, it's a very strong tower. Uh, but that's just a popular way of calling it. But it is interesting that I'm no expert on folk tales. But from what I know, the Battle of Adrianopolis has left some traces in folk materials. But again, uh, I'm not an expert. But it seems that this idea of the Bulgarians fighting against Iron Man, uh, man dressed in iron, is is one of the myths of the um, one of the popular myths of of medieval Bulgaria, and probably they are making reference to the Battle of Adrianopolis. I mean, I, I think it was a huge triumph, anyways, imprisoning and killing the Emperor of Constantinople, even if he was a latent, but he was the Emperor of Constantinople, so it was quite a huge success. Definitely. One final question uh, before we go on break. After the death of Baldwin, did um, did relations improve between Bulgaria and the Latin Empire? Not at all. <laughs> uh, they worsened, and uh, Kaloyan is credited with another kill, <laughs> that is the, the death of uh, the Marquis Boniface of Montferrat, king of Thessalonica. He was killed as well in 1207, a few months before the death of Kaloyan, who was killed according to the Greek version, by Sindimitrius himself. 
to, to punish him for his horrible deeds against the most Christian people of Byzantium. No, they did not improve at all. But after the death of Calvian in 1207, he was succeeded by a relative, Boril, who was defeated by the Latins in 1208. And after this battle, this was not a major battle. I mean, in the sense that the Bulgarians were defeated, but not vanquished. But probably the two states agreed on a border. And we do not have any evidence of military operations until the time of Ivan Asen II, after 1230. So they had some years of peace, yes. I see. Well, we'll have to take a short break for now, but we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. This is Christopher Melke, and joining us today is Dr. Francesco Dallaglio. And um, we've had a very good discussion so far on the Balkans, and um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Latin Empire of Constantinople in this section. Could you start with just a few words on how this, like what exactly it is and uh, how it gets established? Yeah, well, the Latin Empire of Constantinople, I think is one of the most interesting things that ever happened, at least in Southeastern Europe, because it was an attempt at transplanting Western European political traditions and ideology in Byzantium. And, of course, the contamination between the Western European and the Eastern European imperial traditions. It was really, really, really interesting. And sadly, the same problem that plagues the history of medieval Southeastern Europe, that is the lack of sources, plagues the history of the Latin Empire of Constantinople as well, because the texts that have survived are very few and far between, and usually deal with very technical and specific things, what kind of feudal rights a nobleman has or has not in a particular place or the lands of a monastery, things very technical and unfortunately things that cannot always be used as a general measure. We lack any kind of source about the interaction between the Latins and the Byzantines, I mean between the Westerners and the Easterners in Constantinople and in the lands of the Latin Empire. We do not know what kind of interaction there was, what kind of relationship there was between the Westerners and the Easterners. Hate, resentment, or some kind of alliances. We know that, of course, as it always happens, the conquerors married within the local aristocracy. But we know almost almost nothing. This is really fascinating because it's mostly guesswork. And uh, it really is quite fascinating and difficult to, to understand. Another thing that's quite interesting is to what kind of historiographical section does the Latin Empire of Constantinople belong? Does it belong to Byzantine history? Does it belong to Southeastern European history? Does it belong to Western European history or to Crusades history? Uh, it belongs to all of them. And this makes quite difficult the study of this subject because you have to be, well, I won't say equally competent because I'm not, but at least decently acquainted with all these kind of different historiographical traditions and sources. That's quite a lot of historiographic yeah. traditions, and for that matter, languages. 
that you would need to know and to know fluently. You essentially have to be an expert in both the medieval West and Byzantium as well. And it's I think I think it's the Latin Empire from my limited understanding is is sort of in its own category of the studies of the Crusader states because with the Crusader states we're talking about a culture essentially being transplanted, the French and Catholics coming east and setting up in Acre, in Edessa, in Jerusalem and Tripoli. But in the Latin Empire that that ruled Constantinople and its sort of environs in the 13th century, you get the oddest blending of the two traditions. I mean, what immediately comes to mind is um, the seals of the emperors. In some of them, the emperor is on horseback, or it's a very sort of French tradition. And on another seal, maybe in the next generation, there is a Greek title. Yes, Yes, uh, this is quite interesting, and uh, this is one of the few instances in which we can try to understand the history of ideas. In the first years of the empire, the emperors considered themselves as crusaders, and they represented themselves as crusaders on horseback, as you have said. And subsequently, starting with, with the rule of the, of the second emperor, Farid, which was the brother of uh, Baldwin, they began to represent themselves not only as crusaders, but also as Byzantine rulers. They take the iconography of the Byzantine ruler, they and their court, they take the Byzantine titles. This happens immediately. Protospatarius, for instance, and, and other titles, which are immediately bestowed upon the crusaders. And from this thing, we may, of course, understand that at least a part of the Byzantine aristocracy was with them. It was not a complete opposition. Of course, I do not think that, as a general rule, the Byzantines had much love for the, for the new emperors. But we can understand from this kind of behavior that at least a part of the Byzantine aristocracy sided with Latins. And this is quite interesting, because why did it do so? Personal reason, economical reasons, or maybe because they chased away the former emperors, we don't know. But this, I think, is one of the directions in which we should go. And this is more pertinent to the field of Byzantine history, for instance. But at the same time, in this period, Byzantinists are more concerned with the emergence of the post-1205 principalities, the despotate or empire of Epirus and the empire of Nikia, of course. So they have given not much attention to, to this topic. And I think the Byzantine connection is absolutely crucial because one of the things that came to mind when you were just talking right now is that um, the emperors prior to 1204, like essentially the Byzantine emperors from 1180 to 1204 is really a period of chaos in Constantinople. There's constant changing of power, there is, you know, a lot of corruption. There is a lot, well, at least from what we can tell of admittedly biased sources, but the general impression is that in, in Byzantium, it is rather an era of panic. Mm, yes, there were some pretty much definite factions, political factions at the imperial court. Some, a part of the aristocracy was siding with the emperor. 
and there was a consistent part of the Byzantine aristocracy who was not siding with the emperor at all. So I won't say that they welcomed the Latins, but of course they reached an understanding, an agreement with them. I do not think that without uh, some insider help, the Byzant, the, sorry, the Latins have resisted for almost sixty years in Byzantium. I do not think so. No, I think that's that's an excellent point to make. That sounds, it sounds like a very sort of a pragmatic partnership in terms of administration. And and one question I have related to that is, do we know what the language of administration was for the Latin Empire? Was it Latin or was it Greek? Well, this is an excellent question. And the official documents were written in Latin. But, of course, we may believe that imperial chancellor was bilingual. I mean, they obviously employed Byzantine personnel. And so it is possible, but of course this is an hypothesis, it is possible that the documents or the charters, which had something to do with crusading part of the empire, were written in Latin and distributed in Latin, while instead the things that had to do with uh, the internal organization of the empire and that were aimed at Greek-speaking subjects were written in Greek. Now, which one was the original language? I do not know. I mean, in the sense, whether written in Greek and translated into Latin or the other way around, I think that they were written in Latin, to be honest. I think that they were written in Latin. But of course, for the personal of the imperial chancery, well, Latin and Greek were two very well-known languages. I mean, apart from the, you know, from the feeling of, of superiority, which we witnessed in the Byzantine sources, there were lots of Byzantines who spoke Latin very well. So it was not a problem at all for them to write in Latin. I see. And one more question is that, from some of the secondary literature, especially Byzantine secondary literature, talking about the Latin Empire, there's this older tradition that the period of rule under the Latins in the 13th century that we're talking about was essentially a period of decay, and that when Michael VIII uh, retakes the throne in the 1260s, that one of the big things he does is he embarks on a lot of building projects to sort of renovate what has been uh, left to ruin. Now, in your opinion, do you think this view is uh, still valid, or have there been challenges to that? Well, if we judge from the from the appeals that Latin emperors were making to the West, they were constantly asking for money, soldiers and money. It seems that, well, they obviously had some enormous problems because most of the lands which were part of the Byzantine Empire, which had been part of the Byzantine Empire between 1204, were not under the direct control of Constantinople. They were either part of the despotate of the Empire of Epirus, of Nikia, of Bulgaria, of course, or they were almost quasi-independent. So I do think that the 55 years of Latin domination in Constantinople, in the town of Constantinople, well, I do not think that the economic situation was quite good. Uh, I tend to think that it was quite bad, to 
be honest. So I think that apart from the imperial propaganda of the restoration of the town of Constantinople to its former glory after the, the late usurpation, I think that there is a good part of truth in this. I see. Well, thank you very much. We'll be um, taking a short break, but we will be back momentarily. Welcome back. This is Christopher Milke, and joining us today is uh, Dr. Francesco Dallalio. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. Now, one of the things I wanted to do uh, in this particular section was talk a little bit more about some of your work on Bulgaria as well. And I understand that you, you know, you've done a lot of research and you have quite a few papers on Bulgaria and some of the nomadic and um, pagan peoples uh, in the Balkans at this particular time period. Could you give us a brief run through of the sort of pagan groups that uh, Bulgaria is dealing with um, at this particular time? Yes, this is one, another of the very interesting things of that period and of that place. Because we usually tend to think about Bulgaria as some kind of, you know, a connection between Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe. But there's also something that we have to keep in mind. It was also a connection between sedentary Europe and the nomadic lands. Because since the beginning of the so-called Second Bulgarian State or Empire or Kingdom, call it as you wish, in 1185, 1186, the strongest ally of Bulgaria were the Cumans, the Kipchaks, if you want to use the, the Asiatic name. And it's very interesting because we know that they were pagan. They were one of the most important strategical assets of the Bulgarian army. We do not know if it was a proper alliance or if it was some kind of enlisting of a mercenary army. We have to think that their reward was the plunder they made. But they were loyal and very strong allies to the Bulgarians. They were always with them uh, during the most important campaigns. They were instrumental in the saving the newborn Second Bulgarian Kingdom from the Byzantine reaction, and they were instrumental during the Battle of Adrianopolis and during the, during the fights against the Latins and against the Byzantines as well. We may speculate that the Bulgarian royal family, the Asenids, had some personal ties with, with the Cumans. Some Bulgarian scholars have speculated that they were completely or partially of Cuman origin, which would be quite interesting. And why not? I mean, we know for certain that the Asenids were originating from the region called Paristrion or Panadunamon, that is uh, the lower banks of the Danube between the Delta and, and the central massive of the Balkans. And we know for certain that there was quite a sizable human community there. They were living there as they mostly dealt with horses. They were horse traders, horse breeders. So it is absolutely consistent that they were part of the uprising against the Byzantines from the beginning. Of course, now we cannot speak about a national characterization of the of this revolt. I mean, Bulgarians uh, versus Byzantines. This there was some kind of pass me the term uh, proto-nationalistic feeling in this. But the Cumans were part of the uprising from the beginning, and they were quite an important part. They were welcomed at court, they were very influential counselors to the Bulgarian kings, 
according to the Byzantine sources, Kaloyan married a Cuman princess. So, yeah, the connection between Bulgaria and the nomads was very strong at the moment. I mean, one of your papers um, explicitly talks about the different sort of royal centers in Bulgaria and a bit how they change over time. Yes, because, uh, well, Bulgaria is probably the, the most ancient established state in Europe, one of the most ancient. And it's very interesting to witness the, um, the evolution of the royal or even imperial ideology. When we look at the capitals, uh, the first capital of Bulgaria uh, was, uh, was Pliska, which was, well, nothing more than a nomadic camp, a fortified camp. The second capital was Preslav, which was a small Constantinople, not in the sense of the of the size, of course, Constantinople was a monster, but in the sense of the ideology that it conveyed, a stable city, a capital, a Christian town, because Preslav was chosen as capital after the Christianization of Bulgaria in the, the end of the ninth century. And then we have the third capital, which is Velikoturno, which was the capital of the second Bulgarian kingdom after the Byzantine domination, which began as a completely independent town, I mean, a completely autonomous creation, and quickly evolved during the 13th century in another replica of Constantinople from an ideological point of view. The reason I brought that up is that one of the things that you say in your article um, regarding Pliska is that uh, the first capital was, you know, one of the palaces there was essentially a uh, very, very big semi-permanent tent, a, a very big hall, and it's not until later that you get the more complex, permanent sort of uh, established uh, settlements. Yes, exactly. And um, yes, uh, it is true, because in the beginning of their history as an autonomous state, uh, the Bulgarians, which we do not have to forget, came themselves from the steppes. They were not trying to build a state in the European sense of the term. I mean, they, they were not interested in this kind of things. They were just interested in continuing their activities, their pillaging, of course, acquiring land. But the Bulgarian rulers were not interested in presenting themselves as a viable alternative to the Byzantine emperor. They were conquerors, while instead, probably, but not for certain, when the Slavic element became prominent, when Bulgaria expands its borders to the south, to Trace, to Macedonia, which were settled mostly by, by people of Slavic descent, they had to rethink their approach, their ideological approach. And they had really to present themselves as an alternative to Byzantium. And that's why they choose the Christianization. That's why they choose to adopt the Slavic letters that had been developed by St. Cyril and St. Methodius for the Slavs of Moravia. And that's why they choose, well, to settle down, to build a proper capital, probably to give to their new subjects the impression that Bulgaria was as well a state in the, in the civilized, in brackets, of course, in the civilized sense of this word. I have to ask a really, really 
sort of simple question just out of ignorance. So in, in this time period, in the Middle Ages, Bulgarians and Slavs are very different things that later merge. Is that correct? Uh, it is correct. Um, okay. It's correct because I told you the uh, the Bulgars in historiography, we make this distinction between the Bulgars, which were the pagans, nomadic or semi-nomadic conquerors, which crossed the Danube in the year 681, and the Bulgarians. And the Bulgarians are instead the result of the, of the fusion between Bulgars and Slavs. And uh, we always call the country Bulgaria, but actually we should uh, make more a difference between the, the first centuries of the Bulgar rule and Bulgaria properly. After the Christianization, we may really speak of a Bulgaria. But before, we should be speaking about, I don't know, Bulgarland or something like this. We should, we should invent another word, probably. That seems sensible. And um, I also have to ask another question, though. This is about the Cumans, because the Bulgarians end up having their own state and a very strong historic presence. The Hungarians, it's the same situation, but there's no nation of the Cumans. What essentially happens to them? What essentially happens is that they are, well, destroyed during the Mongol advance. And, uh, and most of them end up in Hungary, really. Some of them find employment as mercenaries in Bulgaria and in uh, even for the Latin Empire of Constantinople, what was left of it for the Byzantine principalities. And some of them even end up even more south in the lands controlled by, by the Muslim principalities so well the Cuman Confederation collapses after the the Mongol offensive, the one which brought the Mongols in Hungary and uh, almost into Western Europe. And then they settle down in the Hungarian lands, become Christianized. There are lots of sources in the pontifical correspondence of Honorius III and Gregory IX about the establishment of the Archbishop of Cumania. The Hungarian clergy is tasked with the duty of Christianizing the, the Cumans, and we may think that this process was, apart from some initial objections, well, in the end, it went up pretty well. I see. Alrighty, well, we're going to take a short break now, but we'll be back with the end of the show in just a moment. Hello there. This is Christopher Milke, and joining us today on Past Perfect is Francesco Dallaglio. And we've had uh, we've had a really good discussion uh, so far, I think. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you before the show ended, could you tell us a little bit about some of the research that you're working on right now? Yes, I'm working right now on the relation between the Bulgarian Kingdom and the Latin Empire of Constantinople. This is historiographical gap because there are not many works on the subject. There are some very good things done by Bulgarian historians, of course. You imagine that uh, Bulgarian historiography has been very much concerned with the relations between Bulgaria and the Latin Empire of Constantinople. But, well, let's say that 
uh, these works have become outdated. And so I'm finding it really interesting to to work on this on this subject. I see. And is this about like the sort of will you be able to get at things like day to day interactions or trade or um, you know things like marriage alliances between the two states? Well, of course, my aim, which is maybe overambitious, but <laughs> at the moment I'm moving in all directions. But my aim is to, well, give a complete picture of the relation, a complete picture, of course, given the sources that we have. So it will always be a partial picture, but taking into consideration every kind of aspect, not only the military and diplomatic interaction, but trying to delve also into daily life, cultural patterns, and of course, also marriage strategies or alliances, whatever there is to to work about, which is sadly not that much. I see. Well, you know, the for medieval historians, oftentimes there's uh, not a lot of material to work with, but it's at the same time, you know, what you can make out and what you can find oftentimes is very interesting, all the it same. Is. It is. I'm very envious of my colleague, which, you know, they work on Italian uh, Genoese merchant books of the of the 14th century. And I say, wow, you have merchant books? Really? You have day-to-day diaries? Oh, my God. <laughs> this is something absolutely inert. We have, well, decade-to-decade diaries, which is, well, the best we can do is this one. We have guesswork to do, a lot of guesswork, but, of course informed guesswork. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Dalalio, thank you very much for being a guest uh, on our show today. It's really been very fun talking to you. (laughs) Thank you very much for interviewing me. It's been really, really a great thing for me. Thank you very much. I'm glad to hear that. And uh, for the listeners back home, uh, be sure to visit us on the web at www.medievalradio.org. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, um, be sure to send them to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. From all of us here, we thank you very much for listening. Take care and goodbye. <laughs>